We have seen that at the ECB, the moment that you make an institution independent, the politicization process starts immediately, if you allow it. So I don't see that. So if the outcome of the stability and growth pact is basically a watering down of the criteria and basically postponing any adjustments, then I think the ECB will remain in the position in which it is inside of kind of a debt trap or financial dominance, whatever you call it. And the risk is then that you move into the direction of what I call a Latin EMU. Welcome back to In The Room, a series of conversations with officials who played crucial roles in the development of the European Union, often but not always behind the scenes. On June the 1st, the EU's newest institution, the European Central Bank, will be exactly 25 years old. The ECB's teenage years have been so eventful, taking in a global financial crisis and a health emergency, that it's quite easy to forget its first steps. Back in the 90s, Europe's politicians had agreed a treaty to create the euro and decided where to put their new central bank, but that was it. The architectural and building work had to be done by specialists. And over four years, these bankers, economists and lawyers, using a temporary vehicle called the European Monetary Institute, or EMI, built the ECB from scratch. The man who led the transition from the EMI to the ECB from 98 to 2003 was Wim Duisenberg, a craggy-faced Frieslander who had previously governed the Dutch Central Bank. More a politician with a love of process, Duisenberg needed a policy wonk and a details man by his side in Frankfurt, so he brought along Lex Hochdown, his head of research, to be the president's man, an integral member of the small team that built the ECB from the bottom up. After a career in policymaking and banking, Today, Lex is Professor of Economics of Complexity and Uncertainty in Financial Markets at the University of Groningen. He and I reminisced about those earliest of days at the ECB, about how Duisenberg held out against a French onslaught to impose Jean-Claude Trichet as president, about some of the big beasts he had to deal with, like uh, Nout Wellink and Otmar Issing, and about how the last decade of activist monetary policy has got him thinking the previously unthinkable, a return to the Gilda. So for this and more... I bring you Lex Hochdown. Well, let's start with the very beginning, 1997. And you were taken by Wim Duisenberg to be his advisor at the EMI in the summer of 97. How confident were you when you went there that he would become the president of the ECB after the EMI? Yeah, perhaps I have to explain when he asked me to join him. That was end of 96. At that time, I was at the Dutch Central Bank. I was the head of the Monetary and Economic Policy Department. And he asked me to join him. And then, of course, I asked, but there's only one year EMI left. And then, and then he said, well, of course, my intention is not just to go there for the EMI. I'd like to become the first president of the ECB. I'm pretty sure that the ECB will be established. And I'm quite confident that I will be the first president. And so the idea is if you like to work and you're doing a good job, that you then also become my advisor at the ECB. But I have to tell you one thing he said. It's not my intention, he said at the end of 96, it's very important, it's not my intention to serve the full eight years. Uh, That was was already clear by by that. At that point, I... I said, okay, so it will not be the full eight years, but it will be quite some time. And he said, 
fascinating experience. So I decided to say yes. Had he told anybody else that? Because obviously this, well, we'll come on to that, but that became a big issue. It became uh, a big, uh, big you, you mean? Had he, had he told the Dutch government or anybody that his intention was not to serve the full term? I don't know. I don't know. And for me, it was not a kind of a big announcement at that time. So I said after he had told me that his intention was to stay for the ECB, but not a full eight years, he said, no hint at how long he would like to stay. For me, it was an opportunity I couldn't say no to. Also, because the Dutch Central Bank had said, well, if you want to return, we guarantee you that there is a place for you. They already asked me at that stage what, what would be interesting places for you to move to. If you were to return, I said, well, I mentioned the research department and the financial markets department. And I said, of course, I don't know whether I'd like to return. Let's see. So that was a little bit the idea. For me, it was such an historical opportunity almost. And in a sense, not risky at all because I had that return opportunity. So You were already working pretty closely with him at the Central Bank. No, I was, I, I, not that closely because he was, of course, the president of the Dutch Central Bank. And as head of the monetary economic policy department, I was working directly for Nautwellink. So I had a very uh, close working relationship with Nautwellink. Okay. All right. Interesting. Well, we'll come to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was also Nautwellink who suggested to Duisenberg that he should try to find somebody who could advise him. And the reason was that Nautwellink and Wim Duisenberg worked very closely together. So Wim Duisenberg was the, the minister of finance and Nautwellink was the treasury general at that time at the Ministry of Finance, and they worked very closely together. Wim Duisenberg yeah, is, is the man of the big picture, a really type of leader, not a manager, not a man of details, not one who likes to think deeply theoretically, more a person who likes the process, getting things done, likes action. And Nardwelling very much complimented him, and that had worked very well at the Ministry of Finance. Therefore, when he became... Dutch Central Bank president, he immediately organized that as soon as <laughs> there was a place in the board of the Dutch Central Bank, that Nardwelling came to the Dutch Central Bank. The idea was yeah, that he would flourish best, would perform best if he had somebody as a kind of a sounding board. So that was the idea. Actually, on that point about Treasury Generals and Secretaries of State going into the ECB, which was very common, actually, in the early days of the ECB, do you think there were advantages to it in terms of bringing in somebody who understood the politics or were there disadvantages because there was too much politics? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's a fine balance. It's a fine balance. You can have too much of it. I can understand why in the, in the treaty it's emphasized that it should be persons who know a bit, in my own words, about financial markets, about monetary policy, monetary theory. So... I think it is an advantage if that person doesn't go straight from the political sphere to, let's say, being the president of a central bank. It's a kind of an in-between period where he keeps the experience of being in politics, but also builds up, let's say, the experience in central banking and yeah, can nourish the importance of independence. And I think that was certainly the case for Wim Duisenberg. I think one of the, yeah, the most important things that he did in the very early stages of the ECB was when, at that time, German finance minister Oscar Lafontaine asked for an interest rate reduction. And then he spoke the famous words, I hear you, but I don't listen. I think that was very important. 
Yeah, so I think if you have a person, let me elaborate it in another way. If you're somebody who is a Nobel Prize winner in economics, but has no practical experience either in markets or in politics, that's not optimal either. So when you, you know, in those early days between the EMI and the foundation of the ECB, Jean-Claude Truchet emerged as a candidate to be the first president. Was it ever discussed between them, between Duisenberg and Trichet, or did they leave this entirely with their heads of state and government, and did it lead to some bad feeling? Did Duisenberg feel betrayed by this move? Yeah, it was discussed with them, because I recall, I don't have the exact timing by heart, but it must have been end 97 or early 1998. So I recall that Wim Duisenberg told me that Trichet had told him that he would become a candidate, something like that. And I recall that the Duisenberg, I don't think he used the words betrayed or something like that, but he was definitely not amused. I recall that he told me that he had asked Trichet why he had accepted to be a candidate or something like that. I wasn't present, so I just mm-hmm. tell from my from memory what Duisenberg told me. So why did you accept that? Well, well Trichet had said something, if the president of the... Republic of France asks you something, you cannot refuse it. And that was basically it. And the rest yeah, was discussion between the politicians, culminating in that yeah, infamous weekend yeah, that, in Brussels. Well, I was there as a journalist, yeah. sitting, sitting around for 12 hours or yeah. whatever as they squabbled over this. What was your experience? I, mean, you, you, I, I, was, I was in Frankfurt. Yeah. I was not in Brussels. I was not in touch because it was nothing that I could do. I followed it on the radio, Dutch radio. And then, of course, I learned that, yeah, in the end, after much pressure from all sides, he had profited that little note. And the next thing that I recall is that I, on the Monday morning, when he came back to Frankfurt, I was in Frankfurt that I had him on the phone. In the morning, I congratulated him with his appointment. And I recall that he was, yeah, I was tired. He told me that he had never had such a bad experience. He felt very badly about it. But okay, this was it. Why do you think he held out so much, given that he intended to leave in any case? Was it principle about the independence of the ECB? It was the principle of independence. And perhaps also, but that's more speculation, but but certainly the principle of independence. But perhaps also, yeah, I said he he, he didn't express that he did feel betrayed, but he uh, clearly, he was not amused at the words that I used. So in the end, being forced almost to split the period. He would have felt of giving in to something that he yeah, felt that was not right, that the France at the last moments came with their own candidate. But the principle is very important. And I recall that in the end, he stayed somewhat longer than the four years, also at the request, basically, of the French, because there was some legal issue around Trichet. That's right. Yeah. I don't recall the details, but then he was asked to stay longer. And that was, <laughs> that was a, a moment of silent victory. <laughs> Apart from the personal element, was there also a calculation or a feeling that he had a duty to, for the smaller states to hold out for this position, that in a way the ECB had been carved up between having the headquarters in Germany and the first president being French? So was he holding out in the sense for smaller states as well? No, I don't think that that was a consideration that much. I think... More the idea that it was important 
also from the perspective of the Netherlands, so, so not from mm. the smaller states itself, but from the perspective of the Netherlands, that the ECB would become a central bank yeah, with a philosophy that was as close as possible to the German monetary philosophy, which was very much in line with how the Dutch monetary philosophy had developed. I think that was more of a consideration than smaller countries as such. Well, within a month or two of this summit, the EMI changed into the ECB, and you became general counsel and oversaw a team of board counsellors. How was this structure devised, and in retrospect, do you think it has worked? Yeah, so one small correction, it was not general counsel, because that's most of the time the term that you use for the chief legal person. So it was counsellor to the president, and I was head of the council to the board members or something like that. It's interesting how it developed. Initially, as I said, I was asked by Duisenberg to join him, was at the EMI stage, so there were no other councillors at that moment. Duisenberg was very keen that there would be no kind of a substructure parallel to the staff, as said, like you have in Brussels, that he didn't like. He really would be in, to be in close contact with the staff himself, would like to receive all the information from the staff Selected by me, as we discussed a moment ago, he asked me just as a kind of a sounding board. Somebody he knew, he could trust, uh, knew who that person thought. He immediately told me, don't become a gate between me and the staff. That's not, not what I intend to do here. And I don't want you to have your own team and then, as it were, come in competition with the rest of the staff. That doesn't work. And then the ECB was established. And of course, the other board members knew that I was there. And they said, well, we also like to have somebody assisting us as a sounding board and so on. And that was, of course, that's fine. But let's ensure that it remains small and let's also take the benefit of then some coordination among us via this councillor. So that was, and then the idea came, okay, let's set up a kind of a councillor group that works together. And all board members, except one, decided to have their own councillor. The exception was Christian Royer. And Royer said, well, are you prepared, he told me, to also work a little bit for me? I said, yes, why not? (laughs) So I worked also somewhat for Royer, which was very helpful to have the president and the vice president in one portfolio, as it were. Do you think that system has worked? I mean, do you think these people have potentially turned into gatekeepers or has it? I think it it has uh, worked. It was, of course, in the early days of the EMI, it was quite some suspicion and understandably so. You had, of course, Duisenberg at the top of the EMI and you had Robert Raymond as the secretary general, the heads of the departments. And understandably, Robert Raymond was quite suspicious of how this would develop. But I think it was quite clear from the... I made clear from the beginning and Duisenberg made clear from the beginning that I was not a kind of a gatekeeper for Robert. And so I think it worked and it worked well and it did not hamper in any way the direct context between the board members and their staff and the ideas, the basic ideas, almost always came from the staff. Yeah, I think it worked well. And interestingly, a sign for that is I think that it still exists to this day in a lot of other persons than the initial group have assumed this position. I recall that in the early days of the ECB, there was also some thinking about how this would fit in the career perspective of somebody working at the ECB, which I also found a good development. This is for persons that may have 
high potential. I spent some years, not our whole life, but some years in this position, get a general overview and are then equipped, for instance, getting managerial or going back to content, as it were, as I did when I left, much to the surprise of Otmar Ising. I must, <laughs> I must tell you, so when I went, went back, perhaps... It's too early to raise it in this conversation, but it comes to my mind. So so I went back to the Dutch Central Bank. I was asked by the Dutch Central Bank to come back, asked me to become uh, deputy executive director, heading the research department, one of the return things that I had mentioned. So, And I went to Duisenberg and said, been offered to come back. And I said, well, why don't you do it? I said, okay. Thank you for your advice. But then Otmar Ising said, why are you doing this, going back to the branch, <laughs> not staying at the headquarters? You are now quite close to policies. And then you go back into research. Usually people do it the other way around. That was himself. <laughs> so that's why I returned. But then as I said, the structure remained in place. So Olaf Sleipen succeeded me in that position. And he is now on the board of the Dutch National Bank. Yeah, so, so he, I think he returned after... Yeah, after Duisenberg retired at the ACB, he returned. He then first went to the the biggest Dutch pension fund and then came back. Hmm. What you were talking about there really brings us onto the next issue, which is, as you've said, Duisenberg was not really a details man. And on the board, you had giants like Otmar Rissing yeah. and Tommaso Padoschioppa. How did you manage these kind of egos or these people who were building this new yeah. institution. Yeah. This went remarkably well. These were giants, absolutely. And Duisenberg was a man who, if he trusted persons and he was convinced of their qualities, he gave them all the, you could even say sometimes perhaps too much. So he always said, if I, for instance, said, well, Wim, now you should please talk to Otmar or Tommaso because I think they were a little bit moving too far away from, let's say, the consensus or whatever. I always said things in Dutch, leven en laten leven, leven en let live. And that allowed him to, if he really had the idea that things were moving in the wrong direction, he could in a very friendly manner discuss it one-on-one with his other board members or members of the governing council. They would respect him and then also what he said. So my role was more, let's say, to monitor, as it were, if there are were things moving in, uh, let's say, the wrong direction, whatever that is. And if there was reason, I thought, for Duisburg having a word with anybody, suggesting him to talk to that person. And he then really had to be convinced that he had to intervene. But as he, if he then was convinced, then he immediately picked up the phone and talk to such persons. And as I said, he had a, he was very much respected by all, and yeah, that made him so effective in building the team in his first years. One thing I remember from those early years was a pattern developed where if a message really wanted to be conveyed very strongly, it was said by the president and by the chief economist. Was that deliberate or is that something that just happened? I, I don't know whether that was deliberate, but what was deliberate was that Duisenberg gave a very important role to Ising. He, he saw Ising as responsible, of course, with his team for preparing all the monetary policy decisions. And himself, of course, he had a view. But as I said earlier, he was more interested in how to organize the decision-making process, ensuring that the, in the end the right decision was 
taken that everybody had been able to give his input, also the board members. But he immediately yeah, decided that within the ECB, Ising was the person, let's say, who had to come up with the proposals, the analysis, was also the, yeah, let's say, the guardian of the strategy. So that division of labor, as it were, developed yeah, almost naturally, I would say. If you read the treaty, there is no function of chief economist or even, let's say, all board members are equal. So one of the main discussions that we had in the run-up to the ECB is whether we should have the organizing model of, for instance, the Bundesbank, also the Dutch Central Bank at the time, where board members were responsible for certain departments. Of course, on monetary policy, all had one vote, but... Yeah, contrary to how it is at the Fed, where you have, let's say, all the board members are in different committees and can all draw on different departments. For the ECB, yet it was decided we had to follow the model that the Bundesbank had. And I think many, most of the European central banks at that time, and certainly also the Dutch central banks, so kind of primus inter pares idea. Whereas in the decision-making, it's collegiate decision-making body and that is in the treaty. Was the way the governing council meetings became structured, is that something that developed naturally or was that planned? So for example, there was the dinner the night before where, you know, we've all heard that a lot of the decisions were actually made and then the Thursday meeting was essentially for drafting, that the decision making began with a proposal by the chief economist and then there was a round table. Is that something that developed very quickly? Yeah, I think that was there from the very beginning. And the idea that, as I said earlier, that the chief economist should kick off with the analysis, I think later on that changed a little bit in the sense that also the financial markets director, if I may call that person in that way, gave also an analysis. And then there is really a tour de table where everybody who wants to speak can speak and reacts to the initial thoughts or the proposal of the chief economist. And then Duisenberg's way of acting there was so listening to the debate, very much listening, in the listening mode, and then at the end draw the conclusion. So while listening to the debate, I think the, there is support for the decision or if there was, during the debate it became clear that there should be another decision, then moving in that direction. And then the decision was taken without a vote. Yeah. And never voted. Yeah. The one thing we all know is that there was a decision taken not to publish votes because it was felt yeah. partly yeah. this would lead to national division. But was it ever a decision not even to have votes? Or again, was that a consensus that developed? That was not an explicit decision. It very much followed from the Dutch consensus model, the Dutch polder model, as it is sometimes called, where you aim at reaching consensus, and consensus is then not, there's a difference between consensus and unanimity. Unanimity is that everybody say that this is, I'm in favor of this, but that, that everybody, having listened to the debate and the different views, agrees with the conclusion of the chairperson that this best reflects what everybody thinks. And the idea, and that is how in the, in the broader Dutch society, it's now eroded, but at the time, the brothers, society, the very different pillars, as they were called, that we had in society, 
with very different views, in the end agreed that we need to reach a decision in the end and accepted a certain decision, even if it was not there, number one on the list. With the addition that if you really have very big difficulties with a certain decision proposed as consensus, then you are free to raise that. And then the discussion continues or you postpone a decision. That's very much the way yeah, the Dutch society worked and how the governance worked and also the, the politics worked until the end of the 80s. Then it was already started to be eroded. And Duisenberg was a very much type of yeah, a consensus builder and a consensus person. So the, here there's one anecdote in that context. When he was at the ECB and this issue was, of course, was heavily debated at the beginning by the outside world in particular. And then I recall that he sometimes said, we never vote. And the people were a little bit surprised. And then he said, well, I recall that at, at the Dutch Central Bank, we have voted once. And that was when the other board members felt that I should wear a winter coat, which I never did and were afraid that I would feel ill. And so then they have voted <laughs> with four to one that I should wear a coat. That's the idea. And the, the whole idea was that then also the communication that followed from that is that what you communicate is the consensus decision and the arguments that had led to that consensus. So there is no individual accountability. There's a collegiate body that takes a collegiate decision and then yeah, conveys that, that message. Yeah, so that's how it works. And that's why votes were never published. Do you think a quarter century on, it's time? Because we have a situation now where very quickly the press will report. Yeah, I, th that, I, th you know. I think that this has evolved. Mm. Of course, I think it worked pretty well at the beginning, but still there were already at that time, there were speeches by mm. other board members, by members of the governing council in their own country, where they did not just explain let's say the policy, but also clearly presented their own views. So it was already kind of hybrid from the beginning. And then at a certain point, we were a little bit afraid that this would become counterproductive. So I don't recall when that was introduced, the so-called PERDA periods, which other central banks also also have. But And I think that the, all that worked pretty well until the, the financial crisis, when it was clear that it was very difficult to not also take into account what was happening in your own country. And disagreements yeah, were more deep. This could not be simply papered over by a consensus model. So it's more difficult than that. So, so. And I think it is, it, 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 there is it, it, the votes are being taken. I recall the last period when I was the deputy of Wellink, that then already people were counting the votes around the table. And so there was perhaps... Not an explicit voting, but it was clear what the votes uh, Yeah, I mean, it'd be impossible uh, were, not to. Were, so I don't think it would be, certainly not be problematic, I think, if you would announce that. Not only, there's now also the minutes are being published, or at least summary minutes, if you then also would show the votes. I think sometimes it might also surprise people, because you yeah. would find sometimes that people who come from a what you would think of as a Dutch central bank will vote it hawkishly and vice versa. Yeah. No, and I think at the beginning it was so important to demonstrate and to establish that these policies were made in the interest of the euro area as a whole. So everything was done to, yeah, to promote that and to protect 
that very quickly the discussion would go along national lines. If you were to ask me now, I would not be, certainly not be as keen as I was at that time. Well, the design of the communication or the design of the conduct of the council meetings sounded quite Dutch, but the design of the policy framework, I think we can all agree, was designed by Otmar Rissing and was very much following the Bundesbank model. Were there internal voices against that framework at the time? And do you think policy would have been conducted any differently if the inflation target had been as it is now, symmetrical, the medium term defined, and the monetary pillar left out? Well, you have to be aware that, let's say, the discussion about what policies the ECB should follow, what the framework should be, were, of course, not only started when the ECB was established. They were not even only started when the EMI was established. It was a long tradition of meetings of the, yeah, what was called the Comité des Gouverneurs of the European Central Banks in the BIS meetings, in the context of the BIS meetings. So there was a long-standing discussion, and there were, it was clear that there were different monetary philosophies, different cultures in there, and that had been... Yeah, people understood each other better, but that had not led to, let's say, the victory of one of the of the philosophies. And I recall that, of course, in the initial discussions, the UK was also present. So in the run-up to the ECB, according to the treaty, you, you needed to have increased policy coordination, which always led to requests from other countries than Germany, and not those closely aligned with Germany for getting more of a say in the interest rate that the Bundesbank announced. But in the end, that did never happen. These were all, yeah, paper exercises, as it were. And so in terms of strategies, basically you had inflation targeting on the table and monetary targeting. And the actual adopted strategy is a kind of a compromise. And in the end... The last, let's say, making it very precise, was done when the ECB was established. And in that process, Otmar Ising and his team had a very big influence on what the final strategy became. But it was all within the framework that it should be a kind of a compromise between these two philosophies, as it were. But in particularly the inflation target, which ended up as an asymmetrical target, were you happy with that at the time? First of all, I think... There was no inflation target. I don't know whether you recall that time that we, after many speeches, the ECB is not an inflation target. We have a definition of inflation. But we have two pillars, and these two pillars are then confronted with each other, and the governing council makes a judgment what the risk to price stability are. And by looking at the risk, we calibrate it on a definition of price stability. So our main, the main difficulty was that this was a unique strategy in, in the world and it was not understood well by the outside world. So that was the thing that kept us busy rather than, than the discussion on whether it was symmetrical or not symmetrical. That discussion came somewhat later and that was then in, decided in 2003 when it was well below but close to 2% which at that time was, for instance, by easing, was seen as a clarification of what was already the strategy. And others found it a major change because it implied that it was more symmetrical. Now, the fascinating thing is that in the most recent ECB review, they all of a sudden say, well, we now have made the target, which in the beginning it was not the target, we've made it more symmetrical. 
as that had already been done in 2003, but perhaps that's another issue. But at the time, the main point was how can we explain what exactly, how it exactly works and that it is a kind of more, what we do is a constrained discretion, as Frederick Mishkin called it, rather than that we have a precise target. We basically look at everything in a structure where we try to maintain price stability in the medium term for the area as a whole. And your question, had the, the policies been different if the ECB would have, let's say, adopted the strategy that it has now immediately, that I find difficult to say. But I do know is that if the strategy as it was defined in 1998 or even 2003 would have been applied consistently during the druggy period, we would have had a different monetary policy. Definitely. Yeah, not only me thinking that I recall that a couple of years ago, what my Ising, now Dwellink, and a couple of other former ECB governors or people close to the ECB already said, well, be happy with this very stable, but perhaps a little bit low increase of prices. This is what we would call price stability and no reason to push and push and push with QE to get it a few tens of percent point higher. There was a, uh, yeah. a lot more humility on what monetary policy can achieve than it is nowadays. Inflation targeting as such, that's one of my problems with inflation targeting and strategy, is that it, it has the pretension that you can steer a very complex economy in a very precise manner. And sooner or later, it turns out to be not to work. And if you then yeah, keep to that very strict target, you're going to do disproportionate things. And that's what happened. Well, on that score, I'm always very puzzled about how, given how conservative the initial design of the ECB was, that this famous Article 18.1 got into the Eurosystem yeah. statute. So this is the thing that allows for outright purchases of privately held securities on the secondary market. What were the drafters thinking when they put that in? Yeah. I was not present at many of the drafting sessions around this article, but what I, during the years, what I learned and what the idea was... A couple of things. First of all, that you should have in the statute, as broad as possible, a set of potential monetary policy instruments, so that you would have room for creating new policy instruments in the future if circumstances changed. And why was outright purchases of public debt included? Because, for instance, the Fed used buying and selling of treasuries to influence the money market conditions and thereby the Fed funds rate. The ECB initially, and to this day, had chosen other instruments, so didn't need that. But it was, okay, we have a broad formulation of what the ECB can do so that you don't have to go to the heads of government if you want to design another instrument. So that was one was about consideration. The other consideration was that in many countries around issuance of government debt, the debt offices tried to influence a little bit the market conditions, buying or selling bonds in the secondary markets. And I recall that there were quite a number of countries around the table who wanted to keep that possibility. So and that's why it is in. But it was never, of course, never envisaged that you would use buying and selling to directly influence interest rate on government debt. It's an irony because the Fed in the past used that for its money markets operation because you do not influence the interest rate of the underlying asset. And now you use that opportunity that there was for the type of 
policy that the Fed in the past conducted for all of a sudden trying to influence and to target the rate on the debt. So that's, of course, literally, it is not forbidden, but it was certainly not the intention at that stage to allow that for this objective. And there is, of course, a clear tension with the monetary financing, prohibition monetary financing article. So it is often, like often in, in legal systems, things evolve over time and you can reason one in one direction or the other. But as I said, it's clearly not in line with the intentions and certainly the scale on which it has been done is clearly violating a violation of the idea of non-monetary financing. And it's becoming clearer by the day now that it is clear that QT, wherever it will bring us, it's not back to the original position. So on balance, you have certainly financed permanently deficits. So it's very unfortunate. I certainly take your point in terms of the humility of monetary policy during that second decade. But there were a couple of moments, I'm thinking of 2016 in particular, maybe 2012, well, actually more 2016, where there did appear to be a potential threat of deflation. How would you have addressed that without QE? Yeah, I wouldn't address it too aggressively at all. The problem of the zero bound is, to a large extent, a self-made problem. And not only by the ECB, but it is the result of asymmetric monetary policies since the mid-80s, where central banks become very nervous with any tension in financial markets and in financial institutions because these have grown disproportionately to the size of the real economy. So what is happening in the financial sector is becoming dominant in decisions on monetary policy since the mid-80s at the latest, which means that at any moment of tension or any idea that the economy is sputtering, policy is eased. Whereas at the moment that the economy is doing rather well, there are always arguments that it is not yet full employment or things are fragile and let's not trigger financial instability because debts are very high, private and public debts. So interest rates go down, but there's no symmetry that they go up to the same extent. And that's the trap in which central banks have moved themselves and they have to try to escape on that. And as I said, there was no reason to be so aggressive so long Whereas the asset, the actual inflation rate is hovering, it was, was somewhat on the low side. But measuring inflation is not a precise business and targeting precisely is also not very well possible. So a lot of this QE shouldn't have been done. And there should have been a program of trying to return to more normal interest rates. Of course, there is the different view, as it were, the mainstream majority view is that interest rates were so low because of the savings glut and aging, secular stagnation, whatever. And I think these play a certain role, but I think the policies of central banks are far more important in setting interest rates. Certainly nowadays, all the analysts are focusing on what is the ECB, what is the Fed going to do? And in this context, I recall a discussion at a, a governing council meeting under Trichet, so later in time, when there was nervousness 
as there is often nowadays about what the financial markets should think. And then Tricia said, well, ladies and gentlemen, be quiet, be relaxed. Two words from me and the expectations of the markets change. That should be the situation, I think. Well, I think from what we've heard from you in this discussion about your opinion of the policy of the last 10 plus years, that I think we'd have had an idea what your policy would have been had you been on the governing council. But last year, you even suggested that the Netherlands should leave the euro area and join Denmark and Sweden inside the EU, but outside the currency area. Now, I can see why you would feel let down by the failure to adhere to fiscal and monetary rules. But do you think there would be an actual tangible benefit for the Dutch economy? To yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit more nuanced than you heard it now. I'm concerned about the way the EMU is developing. And that goes back basically to the end of the financial crisis, where my diagnosis of where the EMU stand at that point was that there was no longer the convergence criteria for a sustainable EMU were no longer fulfilled. And that was mainly the debt and deficits criterion. But also, let's say what I see as the yeah, the successor to the real exchange rate criterion, the competitiveness criterion. What had happened is, apart from the increasing debt levels, was that the competitiveness was not converging but diverging. And if you look at how some countries struggled in the euro area, Italy in particular, but not only Italy, Italy, because it's, it's just a clear example, not being able to generate any growth with a high debt, yeah, which I think is not only in the longer term is not sustainable economically, but also not politically. And therefore, my conclusion at the time that we started to draw the conclusion from where do we go after the financial crisis was that basically what was needed was yeah, what I would call renewed convergence. So programs for countries to converge again so that you again meet the criteria and yeah, go back to the EMU as it is foreseen in the treaty. And what I learned, what I saw around me, it was that the conclusion of the politicians, the policymakers, the European Commission was basically another one. And that's basically the idea that there were flaws in the treaty and that EMU should be completed now with integrated steps, basically. And that in combination with the fact that the ECB without a formal review of its strategy, became an inflation targeter and uh, yeah, conducted the type of policy that I said, which, which led to not to a addressing the convergence problems, but rather making them persistent. The establishment of the ESM, which made, let's say, the end of the no bailout clause, basically, making that permanent. My idea was, yes, there was a deep crisis, I can justify and agree with, let's say, Draghi's whatever it takes and setting up the EFSF. But making all that permanent is basically changing the nature of EMU. And it goes further and further. So we are moving in the direction of, how would you call it, a public finance union, and then the political union should follow as well. And my concern is that it is all done in a very intransparent way and is for the Netherlands is something that is politically is very risky 
to do that in this intransparent way because it's it really is moving towards an EMU that we never have signed for, in which we give up budgetary sovereignty, in which we will more and more have to make transfers to other countries, quite costly. And whether you want to give up the sovereignty is, is a political issue. So my effort is trying to get this on the Dutch agenda and say, well, because the discussion in the Netherlands was, and is still, but it's moving a little bit in the right direction, was always either you are in favor of whatever direction the EMU moves and EU moves, or you are in favor of that crazy Nexit. Now, I'm certainly not in favor of a Nexit. I think that would certainly not be in the interest of the Netherlands and all for European cooperation. But I do think that we really have to discuss in this country what type of EU we want. And what I say is there is an alternative. There is an alternative between the political union, budgetary union, and the Nexit. And I find in any case in the discussions, now for instance on revising the stability and growth banks, setting up again a new fund for climate change, people should be aware of what that means in terms of sovereignty and in terms of costs. And I said there isn't, if this is moving in a direction of, if the majority of all other Euro area countries want to move in this direction, and we have the political view and the economic view that this is not the type of EMU that we want, we should consider whether there is life outside EMU, but in the EU. And why do we allow countries like Poland and Sweden just not to join the euro while they have to confirm the treaty? And why do you not allow a country that wants to be an EU member, but now that we are changing the context, I know that part we don't want to participate. Why shouldn't you allow those countries? Isn't there a flaw in Article 50 which says you are allowed to leave the EU, but it is all or nothing? And that I find a flaw. And... I think it's really worthwhile to do a kind of a cost-benefit analysis because if I look at Denmark as an appreciated EU member, follow the type of policies that I would follow if the Dutch would leave the euro area back into the euro. For me, it's not. I don't have the pretense that you can all of a sudden outside the euro area all of a sudden move to a purely independent monetary policy. That's not my point. Netherlands has back to the demarkers, have never run a completely independent monetary policy at all. So that's not my idea. So it's not the idea that you then are able to improve monetary policy, but you keep higher sovereignty on your government policies and you can avoid transfers. And if you have transfers, I've done an analysis with a colleague of mine comparing to the US and very conservative estimates on average 2.5% of GDP per year forever, because there's no conversion, not even in the US, not in Italy, not in Germany, not in Belgium. So this will continue forever. At least that's a risk of very long time. Mm -hmm. So we, we then, to be conservatives, assume 40 years, 2%, 2.5% of GDP. That's a huge amount of money that you then have and sovereignty. So what are the costs? Political costs, but that's homemade political costs. Is that based on no policy change in Italy, no policy change in Greece? Yeah, it is based on the view that you are not optimistic of really addressing the divergences 
and that that is not a matter of and the most urgent discussion in that respect is stability and growth pact at the moment. I don't buy the view that there are flaws in the stability and growth pact and that is that if we allow people to take more time that they will do more and I don't see what the Dutch government for instance proposes independent supervision. I think that is the moment we have seen it at the ECB the moment that you make an institution independent the politicization process starts immediately if you allow it. So I don't see that. So if the outcome of the stability and growth pact is basically a watering down of the criteria and basically postponing any adjustments, then I think the ECB will remain in the position in which it is in a sort of kind of a debt trap or financial dominance, whatever you call it. And the risk is then that you move into the direction of what I call a Latin EMU. That's not to, I'm not blaming Italy or anybody else, but it is, I think it's moving in the direction of the type of monetary policies, policy philosophies of, yeah, let me call it the southern countries, France included, that there were before EMU. And the, the idea was to converge on the German model. And what we do is converging on the Latin model. So that's my analysis. Then, of course, the question is, there are people, and I think it's a legitimate political view, say, well, we are accepting that. That may be, but we should take that decision in an explicit way, because for me, the Latin EMU is an EMU in which you have constantly too loose monetary policies, too low interest rates, threatening instability all the time, too high inflation, and moderate growth, little dynamism. That's the little nuance that I want to <laughs> that I want to bring, as and as I said, it's, it's basically for stimulating the discussion here. Because I know that there is quite a group of people that are quite concerned, but they definitely don't want to leave the EU. Myself in that group, so I would like to create a kind of a space for a reasonable policy and also for conveying to the partners in the EU that we are serious about it and that really things are changing. Okay, well, and we could discuss this for another hour, but (laughs) 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 that that was for part two. But anyway, thanks very much, Lex. My pleasure.